0: Good evening, Mosaic at WDW. My name is Danny. And I am glad to be back from vacation with y'all tonight. Um, I was thinking this week about time, and specifically time management. Now, when it comes to time management, we, I would assume, fall into one of two camps. And I'd love for you guys to guess which one I'm in. Already laughter. Okay, great. So there are those of us who I believe truly enjoy life. And um, so therefore, sometimes we're just a few minutes late to where we said we were gonna be and when we were gonna be there, because we're like enjoying life. And then there are the people who are just too rigid, probably, and like those people like they're like always like saying punctuality is so important and stuff. And, Okay, hopefully you guys can guess which one I am in so far. Uh, I, I jest um, because I am often running behind. Now, now, hear me out. I'm not trying to justify, but it's, it really is not that I mean to. I promise. So if we ever like grabbing coffee and I'm showing up late, I promise it's not that I meant to do that, okay? It's typically that I try to put too much into too little amount of time. I just want to like, do everything always. Also, I think I probably have a little bit of an addiction to, um, to, to like chaos, in a little bit of like, am I gonna get there on time? Like that thing. I think I might like that just a little bit too much. My wife, Allie, is not like that. And this is not her favorite quality about me. Um, she does not like it when I try to squeeze too much into a little amount of time. Um, she is great at showing up on time. She believes it honors people's time and their schedules uh, and, and speaks highly of them as well, which I absolutely also agree with all of those things. Um, it's just that my, my actions don't follow through on that belief. Um, also, like the bonus feature of, of punctuality is that if you are working for Walt Disney World, you get less points on your record card, which is kind of cool. Now... I mention this because sometimes I can view God as being late. That when things are chaotic in life or when things don't turn out the way that I meant them to, I wonder, God, where are you in this? Is he showing up late to the party? All right, God, where is the miracle now in this? Are you going to redeem this moment yet? It doesn't always feel like God is running on time. Now, perhaps this points us to a bigger question um, that I would, I would ask you for you to, um, to, for you to consider. Do you ever find it difficult to reconcile the world that we live in with a God who can be both fully good and fully great? Now, here's what I mean by that. Let's, let's go one piece at a time, fully good. Fully good is the idea that God's desires are actually good. They're not villainous and they're not even neutral, but they are truly embodiment of what is good, righteous, loving, that merciful, like that is the essence, that is the essence of his desire. Do we really believe that God is fully good? Now to be fully great is that he has the ability to follow through on his desires, What that means is that whatever his desires are, does he have the ability to make sure that whatever he desires is what happens in the world that we live in? And see, those two things can seem so contradictory when you look at the world we live in. How in the middle of a world that is filled with so much brokenness and chaos, we often refer to as planet death, how in the world of planet death can God, the creator, be fully good, that his desires are always good, and that he is also fully great, that he he always has the ability to live out his good desires. When we look at our world that has so much suffering, chaos, death, betrayal, all of it. it. And so oftentimes, we will prioritize one of those features of God over the other. Yeah, I believe that God is always loving and kind, but he's not He might be like a little bit inept. Like he's not like always that strong to do what he wants to do. Or we go on the other end and we're like, yeah, God can do whatever he wants, but then he's not, ends up being um, shrunk down in his quotient of love and goodness. So these two realities are competing. Or are they? Because you see, to trust God in his timing is to trust both in his goodness and in his greatness in the midst of a world of chaos in the middle of our busted world. Now tonight, as we continue in our series called Jesus True and Better, we have been looking throughout the summer at how the entirety of the Bible is a unified story that leads us to Jesus. And tonight, we're gonna be going into a specific story um, that is going to bring into question the concept of God's timing and control of all things. As it's been alluded to on the stage in the opening worship set, Um, is the the Bible word, the theology word is sovereignty. God's sovereignty, his ability to do what he desires in this world. Now, this may seem odd when you look at the unique story that we're going into tonight, because the story we're going into is a story of a woman named Esther. And in the story of Esther, it's the only book in the entirety of the scriptures that has no direct references to God in its entirety. It's pretty fascinating, right? Now, for me, the fact that God isn't mentioned at all becomes even more meaningful when we bring it to the place of discovering God's fingerprints and stories, even when his presence doesn't seem to be evident at first glance. Where is God when we don't necessarily see him? So you feel free to open up your Bibles to Esther. We're going to start in chapter 1. Uh, If you are following along on a digital device, I am reading out the English Standard Version um, to make it easy to keep up and keep along. Now, to get to where we're at this week from last week, fast forwarding from last week, we were in the story of Deborah in the book of Judges. And in that time of the Judges, we are moving a few hundred years into the future, to the time known as the exile. See, there's a consistent theme that has happened throughout the entire story of Israel um, that is repeated over and over again in the story of the judges. That they did what was right in their own eyes, and what was they did what was evil in the sight of God. And that story, that refrain continued to play out time and time and time again, up to the point where the um, up to the point where they were led into exile because God allowed the uh, out of the rebellion allowed neighbors who had their harm at their heart, invade the people of Israel and carry them off into captivity and into exile. So this is the place that we are spending time in tonight. Now, it's in this period called the exile that we'll journey into the story of Esther. Now, Just as this is a story that makes no direct references to God, tonight, the way I'm going to teach this is going to be a little bit different than the way I typically teach a story of the Bible. Instead of kind of going along and throughout it, kind of taking different pieces and chatting about specific pieces of it in greater depth and what that means for us today, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell the entire story of Esther to start. And then at the back end, we'll spend a few minutes talking about what this actually means for us today. Um, And by doing so, my hope is that we will get the the full breadth and beauty of Esther's story. So Esther chapter one, it starts with some context into the empire, which is the Persian empire that you probably remember from like seventh or eighth grade history class. Uh, We are going into the Persian empire where the Jews are being held captive in exile. So it starts off now in the days of Asurus the Azurus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Azurus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his pomp and his greatness for many days, 180 days. So this gives us a background of the magnitude of the Persian empire. Did you catch that? It said from Middle Asia, so India, all the way to Middle Africa, Ethiopia, all of that land is this king's. His kingdom is huge. It's estimated it was 50 million people were his subjects. That sounds like a lot, right? It's even more back in ancient times. That was half of the global population at that time. Half of the globe saw him as their authority. This guy was a big deal. And we find out in this verse, this passage, that he knew he was a big deal, that he threw a party for himself for six months and invited everyone to celebrate how cool he was. Like he knew it, you knew it. And it was like like Emperor's New Groove a little bit, right? Like he's like, you're gonna celebrate me here for 180 days, show off all of his property. So then, what happens next is he calls in his queen. Her name was Vashti. So, Queen Vashti, he summons her because she is supposed to be the most beautiful woman in the empire. And he is going to show her off as property in front of everyone. She refuses to come. Right? Like, this is a big deal. This is the king of 50 million people. And she's like, I'm not coming. Well, He's humiliated. So he calls and summons a bunch of his cronies together and they're chatting. And he's like, what can I do to to punish her? Because now I'm embarrassed. And they said that, well, you can exile her. So he exiles her and she is sent off. Now, why does that matter? We're going to see kind of a, a bit of parallelism in this story a little bit later, but Take note of this fact. She was called to the king and she refuses to come and therefore she's exiled, okay? So we're gonna stop there on that piece. But that means that now the queen is no longer the queen. So there is in, there's a vacant spot as queen. So some time passes, and his cronies come up with an idea, which is a forced captivity beauty pageant of the entire Persian empire. So out of all 127 provinces, these individuals would be sent out to go find the most beautiful women of all of Persia and bring them to him, and he would see which one is his favorite, and he would take that one as his new queen. So... That is the background for our story of where we're going tonight. Then in Esther chapter two, we meet the two primary characters of our story. We meet Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai came from, was born in Jerusalem and had been taken into captivity into the Persian empire. As he is sitting in captivity though, he ends up becoming the adoptive parent of Esther because her parents had passed away. So um, they are, they are blood-related. So, uh, so he adopts her as his daughter. And it says that she was of great beauty herself. And she was probably, most would estimate, probably um, a young teenager at this point. But she was known for her beauty so when this forced beauty pageant comes, comes into town, she is taken captive and taken into this royal beauty pageant. And for 12 months, all the women of this beauty pageant have to go through a beautification process for 12 months, getting quote unquote pampered, but getting prepared for, to go in front of the king. And then the king will pick which one will become the new queen. So that brings us to the point where Esther, after a year, is brought in in front of king, King Ahasuerus, And it says in chapter 2, verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. So it's easy to say that Esther's life was difficult. She was... She was orphaned because of the deaths of both of her parents. She was in exile in a strange and foreign land. And then, then she was taken from her home, forced into a beauty pageant, and has now been made the queen of the entire Persian empire, queen over 50 million people. But in the middle of this story, in the middle of it so far, what we've discovered is that favor has already fallen on the queen, or on to Esther, albeit not necessarily what she would have ever hoped for or desired, but nonetheless, this is the position she is in, so the story continues that Mordecai, her adoptive father, works in the employment of the king to some capacity in the sense that like probably every 50, fifty million people work for the presence of the king and but he has lived in the city the capital city of the Persian Empire in Susa, and as he is there, he overhears something that he wasn't meant to, but ends up being worked for incredible purposes um, chapter two. Verse 21, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigfin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asuras. So these two disgruntled employees are now plotting against the king and Mordecai overhears it. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai happens to hear this plot and then he's related to Esther. So tells the queen, hey, the king's about to get assassinated. And she reports that in his name. And this is written down in the book of Chronicles. That is going to be important a little bit later as well. So he points out a flaw in the security system. So the king goes and brings in a new security system, a guy named Haman. Now, Haman is an Agagite, it says in, the, in chapter three. Now, what that means, that should mean almost nothing to any of us here, but for a Jew in this day and age, the Agagites were their ancient en- enemies and they were bitter enemies, very difficult situation for all of a sudden for, um, for Mordecai to realize that his boss is now an Agagite. So everyone is supposed to fall on their face and bow down and honor Haman, but Mordecai refuses. Now, Haman is not a big fan of this refusal. In fact, we read chapter three, verse five, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. He is spitting venom, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, okay? So who did he plan on it? So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Asuras. So he feels disrespected by Mordecai. So his response wasn't to fire Mordecai, not to even just kill Mordecai. It's to commit genocide against the entire Jewish people throughout the entire Persian empire. This guy was wicked, and he wanted to play it out. The only thing was that he was very superstitiously religious. So what he would do is he takes these, essentially like an ancient version of dice called the poor, and he would roll the dice every so often to help him, give, give him the wisdom that he needed to know when he should go to the king to execute this hopeful genocide plot. So for Time and time again, he keeps rolling the dice, and over and over again, it doesn't give him the answer he was looking for. It ends up taking him over a year before it rolls the proper way, and he can finally go to the king. Now, when he goes to the king, he doesn't say, hey, there are these, these people, the Jewish people. I want to annihilate all of them. Instead, he manipulates the king and says, there's a people who are deceptive, manipulative, and they want to destroy you and your entire kingdom. And the king's like, those people sound terrible. Let's go ahead and kill all of them. And so that becomes the law on the books. Now, Mordecai, he hears about this story playing out. He hears about this new law that's coming on the books, and so do a bunch of the other Jewish people in the area. And they begin to grieve that this is coming down the pike, that they are going to all be destroyed. Queen Esther eventually gets in contact with her adoptive father, Mordecai, and finds out about what's been going on. And, And Mordecai asks Esther, Esther, go to the king and talk to him. Go talk to him. Talk to him on behalf of your people. Convince him otherwise. But as it says in chapter 4, verse 11, she responds back to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner chamber without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. So remember Vashti, she was called to the king and refused to go and was therefore exiled. Esther has not been called to the king for over 30 days now and she now has the difficult decision to force her way in to his presence anyway because she knows that if she does it she's not even just going to get exiled she the law on the books is unless he holds out that golden scepter she dies So this is, could you imagine that decision? Like, that sounds really terrifying. That one person that you need to convince to not commit genocide also has to start before you can even get there, has to, to say, yeah, I don't feel disrespected by you just barging in on me. Like, that's terrifying, especially with this king. So Mordecai, he says something back to her in the next message. He says, do you not think to yourself that in the king 's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise to the Jews from another place, so for some reason, Mordecai believes that the people of Israel are going to be protected somehow some way for some reason, and then he continues, but you and your father 's house will perish, so if you don 't intercede, if you don 't advocate on behalf of your people tonight. If you don't do it, uh, something's going to happen. It's going to be taken care of somehow, some way. But you won't make it. But then get this. This is so good. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And who knows if you've not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. Perhaps you are in this position for a specific purpose. This specific purpose purpose. And what she says in response is, I will go fast on my behalf and so will I. And if I perish, I perish. So she makes the call and she's ready to go in. So she goes in and what happens is when the chapter 5, verse 2. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I prepared for the king. So she doesn't start by immediately making her request known to the king. Instead, she says, hey, I want to have a feast specifically just for you and Haman. So Haman gets rounded up. He comes over. He's super excited. The queen wants him over for dinner. And the three of them have dinner together. The same question is asked by the king once again that night. And this time, she says the same thing. She says, I want to have another feast for you and Haman tomorrow. Now, if you're Haman, how are you feeling? I mean, you're getting the genocide you've always wanted. Like, like, and now the queen's inviting you over for dinner twice, two nights in a row. You and the king, like, this, Haman is riding high. He's living his best life right now. And that's what it says, verse nine. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Like, he is stoked. He is like, <laughs> everything is going so good like uh, Tobey Maguire in Spider-Man 3. And, um, and all of a sudden, who does he run into but Mordecai? But this time, he's, too, so, he's doing so good, even Mordecai can't bring his day down. Instead, his cronies say, you know what would be so cool to do to Mordecai? Like your house, it's so beautiful. Let's, let's build some gallows out in front of your house and we'll kill Mordecai right in front of your house. So that way you're like, yeah. Like, it's gonna be like, you're really gonna rub it into Mordecai's face. And he's like, that sounds like a great idea. Build those gallows right in front of my house. What a beautiful addition to the garden, right? So he is prepared for this moment. Now, the only problem was the night before Or Sorry, that night, that night, the king can't fall asleep. Except back then, he didn't have an iPhone to scroll on social media on or on Apple News, right? So instead, he does an ancient kingly version of scrolling. He calls in the scribes to go get the book of Chronicles of the king's accounts and has them read him a bedtime story of his own awesomeness. (laughs) And this part that they happen to read is the story of Mordecai. Saving the king's life. The king says to his scribes, "He's like, hey, this guy Mordecai. Did we ever do anything for him? Like, did we ever honor him or like give him a reward or something?" And they go, "No, Mordecai never got anything." Actually, and he's like, okay, and he says. K- can you go like search the, the, king, um, the castle really quick and like see if there is any of my royal advisors that can come in and give me some advice on this? And they're like, absolutely, um, Haman's here. And they're like, oh, cool. Okay, bring Haman in. So he asks Haman the question. He asks him this, what should be done to honor, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Now, if you're Haman, who are you thinking this is about? <laughs> right, he's like, <laughs> He's gonna honor me. This is so cool. Like, I get to pick my own reward. Well, like, I mean, I guess if you're gonna honor someone, here's what I would probably say. And he's lists off a few things. I would probably recommend, like, let's start with like some of the clothes from your royal wardrobe. Like, I would give those to him, whoever this man would be. Um, like your horse, like your favorite horse. Give him that horse as well. That would be pretty cool. Um, and a new crown, that would be neat too. Oh, and let's throw a parade for whoever this guy happens to be in the entire town so everyone can know how awesome. He is. And in a fitting bit of irony, the king says, perfect. That all sounds great. Go to Mordecai and get him to do all that stuff. You, you yourself. Now, it's the king, right? So what are you gonna do? You do what he says, even when it's like the most humiliating thing you could imagine. And he is frustrated, but he goes and he does all this to honor Mordecai. Now, At least he's having dinner that night with the king and queen though, right? Like like, this is gonna get better now because like genocide is coming, dinner of honor, like things are still gonna work out in his direction. But just so happens that when the king asks that same question a third time, what do you want, Queen Esther? Her response is, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And if, and if we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not nothing compared to the loss for the queen, to the king. Then the king says to, to Queen Esther, who is he? Who is, where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther points the finger and says, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And if you're Haman, your day got a lot worse really quick. And the king, not only does that sound terrible, but if you're the egotistical king in this story, you got bamboozled and manipulated right, by Haman. So he is furious. So he goes and takes a lap. He's like, I got to go on a walk. I can't do this for a second. So he goes on a walk. And so Haman takes this opportunity to beg Queen Esther for his life. He is like, please, no. Now, it also so happens that they had been drinking a lot that night. Um, It actually makes uh, multiple references to alcohol in this passage. And so Haman seems to be falling right on top of Queen Esther right as the king walks back in. Ooh, not a great move. At that, the king's like, that's it. (laughs) Like, we're done here. And then one of, the, one of his guys says, well, he actually just built some gallows in front of his own house. We could probably like... <laughs> you see, what Haman meant for revenge on Mordecai, the king uses as an instrument of justice on Haman. The villain is taken care of. The only problem is that the law is still intact. Now, here's why that is. Because he, the king, is worshiped as a god he is considered infallible. So he can't undo his own laws because that would, if he took away one of his own laws, that would be self-contradictory. It wouldn't look good for the whole infallibility thing, right? So instead, the king says to Esther and to Mordecai that they can write any law that they desire to invalidate the genocide law that is about to go into effect. So what they end up creating is a self-defense law for the Jewish people. That that if they are attacked, they are legally allowed to arm and defend themselves. And further, if they are even allowed to take the possessions and wealth of any of their attackers as well, which is fitting because that's what Haman was going to do to the Jewish people. That if if you were a part of this genocide, you had the ability to take the stuff of the Jewish people. So in another reversal the day finally comes and the Jews dominate their attackers. In self-defense, they end up killing 75,000 attackers across the Persian empire. They were so dominant that non-Jews even wanted to convert to Judaism because they're like, something's going on over here. I don't even know how you guys are getting this power, but like, I'm in. But it's important to note that even though they were legally allowed to take the wealth and the material goods of those who attacked them, they refused. They didn't take what wasn't theirs. So the people are victorious. Now for Mordecai, he is handed the property and positions of Haman. That house in the hills, that's Mordecai's now. And for Esther, she was honored as an incredible queen. And she is honored in the Jewish festival calendar with a special holiday known as Purim, uh, where that word pur, the dice, the ancient dice rolling. So it's called Purim, where it celebrates this incredible story and God's faithfulness in the midst of it. You see, all of this we could look at and we can see that this is a story of Esther's incredible boldness and Mordecai's incredible integrity and honor. And that both of those realities are just bolstered up by luck and chance. That all these things just kind of happen to fall into the right order. Or this story is telling a different story altogether. Pastor Mark Dever, he wrote in one book um, a list of things that just happened to happen in this story. So I'm just gonna read some of them. That Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king's life, a report that just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai does not kneel before him, and he just happens to find out that Mordecai's a Jew. When Haman plots his revenge, the dice just happen to indicate that the date for exacting revenge is gonna take almost an entire year to go into effect. Esther just happens to get the king's approval to speak, but then she happens to put off her request for another day, and her deferral, ends up just happened to allow Haman to go out by Mordecai for another day, then to construct the gallows. It just so happens that the previous night, the mighty king could not command a moment's night's sleep, and he just happens to have his book brought into him that happens to recount Mordecai's deeds. He then happens to ask whether Mordecai had been rewarded to which the attendants happen to know the answer to that question. And by the way, if you're Mordecai, you saved the king's life. Are, wouldn't that be odd like you're, that you didn't get like $15 or something? Like, like wouldn't you be like, I, why didn't, nothing? You know, that, like 50 million people guy like nothing? Well, all that just happened. Haman just happens to approach the king just when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored. Later on, the king happens to return just as the king is being um, approached by Haman and it could be easily misconstrued. The gallows that Haman built for Mordecai just happened to be ready when the king was ready to hang Haman. Because all of these things, well, they just happened to happen. But Nestor 4, verse 14 Let's reread what it says there. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe there was an intention now. Maybe there's a purpose behind the brokenness that brought you here. Maybe there's purpose behind this. Maybe there is good that can be brought out of this. For such a time as this. See, seeing all of these occurrences, you could choose to believe one of three things. That one, Esther got really, really lucky in this story. You might believe because all these things are too coincidental, that it's all just fiction. It's all just, it's all just like a good moral story. Or you can believe that there is a master craftsman of a storyteller who is writing a cosmic story of greatness throughout the universe. And that even in this story where his name is not mentioned, his fingerprints are all over the story. Because you see, Esther does not simply point us to the bravery of one incredible individual, although it does do that. It is meant to point us to the true boldness and bravery of another, the true and better one. See, Esther came to the kingdom for such a time as this. Jesus It said, at the right time, he died for the ungodly. Both of their stories carry the fingerprints of God's sovereignty. But Jesus' story shows the truth that God is never late, even when it feels like he is. He is never absent, even when it feels like he is distant. In Jesus, we have the presence of God always timed to perfection. It's no coincidence that this story makes no direct references to God because whether we see him or his fingerprints, see him in it or not, his fingerprints are all over the story and all over my story, all over your story and all over the story of humanity. Now, speaking of God's sovereignty, does this mean that if the the desired outcome does not always happen, then somehow something went wrong? If, for example, if the physical healing doesn't come, if the path doesn't get easier, if the promotion doesn't come through, then somehow you failed because if God is good and great and it doesn't work out the way you thought it was going to, then somehow you, you did it wrong. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't do enough good works to earn God's favor. I've been watching um, this show uh, called Manifest on Netflix. Yeah, some of you guys have been watching it too. Cancelled. Uh <laughs> But in this show, uh, if you haven't seen the show Manifest, it's about a plane plane of passengers who take off from Jamaica and land five and a half years later in in New York City, except for them, almost no time has passed. Now, when they do this, they all of a sudden have all these new and unusual abilities to receive these visions that they call callings. And when they get these callings, they like have to go do a bunch of weird things that don't really make sense. And it ends up coming together for some like really cool story that you're like, oh, that like fit together really well. And in this, even though this is definitely not a show that is rooted in the scriptures, it is, they keep using a verse out, completely out of context, over and over and over again. And they repeat this line, all things work together for good. They say it like in almost every episode. All good things, all things work together for good as these like intricate pieces all come together time and time again. Now, there's only two things wrong with this. One, that is not the complete verse. And then two, this is so far from the context of the verse itself. (laughs) The actual verse, Romans 8.28, Hannah mentioned it earlier. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, it's not about about currying God's favor. It is not about following a bunch of mysterious callings that make no sense to us. It is about the reality and the truth that the spirit of God is alive and active, working within the life of the church to love God and to love people. For all of us who are adopted kids into the family of God, we have been given the spirit of God so that we can know that even when things don't make sense, God is up to something redemptive. If the diagnosis leads to death, if the layoff leads to a move, if this story would have turned out vastly different and the king never reached out the golden scepter to Esther, it doesn't change the goodness or the greatness of God. See, God is utilizing the broken circumstances of our world and using them for our good and for his glory. Now, now hear me on this. I don't wanna make light of wherever you are at or what you are going through. The one simple truth that I do know, though, that bleeds out from Genesis revelation in the scriptures is that no matter how bleak the situation, no no matter how painful the grief, no matter how traumatic the past, in Jesus, like in Esther, we have an advocate. Except this advocate is so good to understand and to empathize with our hurts and his greatness is so great to claim ultimate victory over the darkest and most broken circumstances and moments of our lives that make no sense and to bring them together to be something good and redemptive, even when it makes no sense. Jesus is the true and better Esther. And Esther, we find she was lowly and she was raised up to bring victory to the people of God. And Jesus, as it says in Hebrews, um, for a little while, he was made lower than the angels to bring ultimate victory to the expanded family of God. Esther stood in the gap for, the, for her people's victory. Jesus remains in the gap even today on your behalf and mine. Esther had to be pushed by Mordecai a little bit to embrace her calling. Jesus willfully embraced his calling. Esther risked everything, risked losing an earthly palace for her kinsmen. Jesus surrendered the ultimate heavenly palace for a time for his future siblings, us. Esther was powerless, made powerful to advocate for the powerless. Jesus is the powerful, seemingly made powerless to advocate for all of us who are powerless over sin and death. Jesus is a true and better Esther, our advocate forever. The God who is not in the wrong place or the wrong time when he was born in the backwoods of Bethlehem during the middle of a Roman occupation. Like, talk about terrible timing, right? Like, if, I mean, like, how many of you guys would have, like, if you were to put Jesus in a time in history, you would have picked that one in that place at that time, right? Like, d- didn't God know that we would have live streaming? I mean, if you really wanted Jesus, like, everyone to get that Sermon on the Mount thing, like, Today, like this would make so much more sense. The God who is not in the wrong place or the wrong time is he hung his son on a cross and rose him from the grave. This is our advocate who has come for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Now, I don't expect that you can be convinced with one story and one message of this reality that God is both truly good and truly great and his timing is perfect. But I hope for those of us who are here tonight struggling, that this might at the very least pique your curiosity. I would encourage you to spend time learning about the character of God in the scriptures. I would encourage you to bring your hurts and your doubts to him, wrestle with God because he can handle it. Yell out at him because he can handle it. And I would encourage you to wrestle through all of this in the context of biblical community. When we do life together, And I would invite you to see what God can do in the middle of that. See, I have become convinced in my life through the ups and the downs, through unexpected death, through heartbreak, through career changes I never expected, through the most beautiful and the most broken of the moments of my story, I have not discovered how incredible I am. I've not discovered that I am faithful. I've discovered that I oftentimes anything but. But I have discovered his fingerprints in the middle of all of those stories. I've discovered that even in the most heartbreaking moments of my life, his presence is there. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band to come on up. See, what I have learned in my life and in my story is that God is on time, even when I am not. He is present, even when I am absent. He is victorious, even when I'm feeling like a failure. This is the truth of who he is. In the middle of the hurt, in the middle of the suffering, in the middle of the pain, in the middle of the beauty, in the middle of the laughter, in the middle of the encouragement. His character is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And my hope for all of us is that we would rest in that, we'd sit in that, even when our lives will not anything but restful. So right now, I'm gonna ask and invite you to pray with me. And if that's you, I would love for you to just receive this and pray, out, pray to God right now, asking him to make this real, even when you don't feel it to you. Father, I thank you for the goodness of your story and the life of Esther. What an incredible and faithful servant you have in her. Thank you for her story and the encouragement that is in our lives. Thank you for Mordecai and the integrity that he lived in. I thank you that in the middle of our stories, whether we are doing better or worse, whether we are struggling or we have it all together, that wherever we are at, you have not given up on us, that you have not lost your presence on us, that you haven't walked out on us, and that it is because of the victory of Jesus that that is possible. It speaks nothing of our goodness, of our awesomeness. It speaks everything of his. Thank you for allowing him to be the true and the better, the one who is great, and good, and loving, and kind, and sits with us in the middle of the heartbreak, in the middle of the difficult, in the middle of the struggle. And he does that as we abide, and he does that as we live life in community. So Father, I bring all of this to you, and we ask for you to move powerfully tonight in our hearts, in our minds. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.